Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. heard this joke before. A Jewish mother from Long Island surprises everyone. She's never left the country before. She gets on a plane to India, lands in New Delhi, and says, I need to go find the great guru of the mountain. And they say, well, you need to take a train up to the Himalayas. Do you need any help? She's like, I know exactly where I'm going. I'll go up to the Himalayas. She gets on a train. She goes to the Himalayas. At the bottom of a mountain, there's an ashram. And she says, I need to go speak to the guru of the mountain. And they say, well, you know, it's, it's a three-day trek up the mountain. She's like, okay, well, help me get up there. They help her up. And there she goes to the great ashram on top of the mountain, and they bring her to a waiting room. She says, what's this? This is where you will sit and meditate because you can only say three words. And she says, I don't need to meditate. I know exactly what I'm going to say. I say, are you sure this is your opportunity to speak to the guru? She says, I know what I'm going to say. I say, fine. They bring her in. She walks up to the guru and says, Murray, come home. <laughs> so that joke resonates because we know about this phenomenon already. It's now spanning generations. I've met grandchildren of people who once reflecting the youth culture in America, we're exploring what we'll call Eastern religions, although I like to say Eastern religions, uh, calling, calling all the different spiritual traditions of India, China, Japan, Korea, and more Eastern religion is like, call, it's like uh, Pan-Asian restaurants. It's, it's, it's what we view it as. It's not necessarily what happens on the ground. But we know we have three generations already, grandchildren who grew up, either they kept their grandparents' traditions, and they continue to practice Buddhism or Hinduism or some other tradition, or they've moved on, but we're no longer talking about something that is new. So first, I want to say what I'm not going to speak on tonight. There have been books and books about this, from Roger Kamenitz's The Jew and the Lotus, which was a book I loved when I was in college, to other books, Torah and Dharma, Zen and, you know, Zen and Hasidism, there's so many different books comparing, contrasting the ideas of Judaism and Buddhism. What I want to do tonight is take the opportunity to do two things. First, have to have some reflection, and this will be more autobiographical, about how Buddhism has enriched my own Jewish practice, as well to look at that now that we have three generations of interacting with a tradition that we do not have the same baggage, say what we'll call Abrahamic faiths. We don't have the same history with Christianity and Islam. But now we have some real history with Buddhism, with a tradition that is not our own, 
How do we interact with another tradition? What does that say about when we use words to define Buddhism, to label it, to label Eastern religions? When we talk about Judaism to Buddhists, what do we do? When we talk about Judaism to ourselves and Buddhism to ourselves, what do we say? And to really use this as an opportunity to reflect on what it means when we encounter a different tradition, when we encounter the other, and then to take that together and to see how can we move forward? What is something that we can do to move forward? So with that, just a little bit about uh, my own journey and how Buddhism fit in. I, I grew up um, in Miami, which is basically a lot like Arizona, but humid. I grew up in a modern Orthodox community. My father, may he rest in peace, was a Sephardic Israeli man, which meant that he worked on Shabbat, but I had to go to shul. In high school, became interested in I, two different spiritual influences. Uh, one was there's a yeshiva in Farakaway in New York that is very much a rationalist yeshiva. Uh, they vary into philosophy. We studied Aristotle and Plato. Um, if the Rosh HaYeshiva, if the head of the yeshiva believed in reincarnation, then we would have said he was a reincarnation of Maimonides. That was one spiritual influence. The other was a martial arts instructor I had who practiced something called Torah Dojo. I don't know if you're familiar with it, um, but it's, uh, was, it was originated actually at Yeshiva University um, from a man, a Jewish man, who uh, studied martial arts and wanted to create a form of martial arts that incorporated the wisdom of uh, the martial arts he was studying in China mostly into Jewish life. So that was one of my first encounters with this attempt to create, to be, I will call it a jubu, uh, to create some sort of hybrid identity. And I learned some meditation, and I went back and forth with that. Eventually, I went to college, and I went to this yeshiva in Farakaway, and it, was, it wasn't the place for me. I became, at the time, I would have called myself an atheist. Uh, the phrase that we used, going off the derech, you know, I went off the path, because it wasn't the spiritual path for me. And I had some meditation background, so I joined the Buddhist meditation group. I, I was at Columbia University, uh, which has many Jewish students at it, uh, but I was certainly by far not the only Jewish student in the Jewish meditation group. And then I, I met a girl who I had a crush on. She was going to this thing called Students for Free Tibet, which was a political activist group. Um, she ended up dating my best friend. I ended up running the club. That's how it goes. And I went to this interfaith outreach event to raise awareness for uh, political oppression in Tibet. And there were a whole bunch of groups there representing different causes. And they kept calling me rabbi. Uh, today, that would be accurate. But then it was the farthest thing from accurate. And I said, I'm not a rabbi. They said, well, you know, this is an interfaith event. Uh, what are you representing? I, well, I'm representing Tibetan Buddhism. So tell us about Tibetan Buddhism. I don't know the first thing about Tibetan Buddhism. So I realized I had to go study. So I found a teacher um, from friends of mine. And I fell in love. He was very charismatic. He was a great instructor. And he really was responding to things that I needed at that point in my life. And I became very interested in the study of Buddhism. And I became a very serious practitioner. At this stage of my life, I'm 40 years old, so it doesn't seem like that long of a period. It was about three years of my life. But there were three very formative years of my life. And they culminated in me going to India to study in a Tibetan monastery in India, not to become a monk, although my, my wife, who I'd met just before then, um, was very nervous that that was what was going to happen. But 
it was to study in an intensive environment. And when I was there, I realized that I was missing something that was important for me. And I had planned to go back to Israel. I had already had my own uh, explorations of Judaism and Buddhism. I was reading Roger Kamenetz. So I, I realized I needed to go to Israel before Passover, before Pesach. I did. Uh, and it was there I began, I re-engaged with, uh, with study, uh, especially uh, Talmud study and Jewish mysticism and other, and just simply Jewish texts in general. And I realized that becoming religiously Jewish again was the right path for myself. That being said, just as when I was practicing Buddhism, I was constantly making comparisons with Judaism, finding ways in which Judaism informed my Buddhist practice. I did the same thing, just in reverse. So one of the things before I even went to India, I ran a Passover Seder. There were 18 people in the Seder of all different faiths, and I ran a totally traditional Seder, and I gave a Rashi-style explanation for every, for every aspect of the Seder. Very basic, this is what it means. And I said, I'm just going to open the floor. Anybody, give an interpretation that makes sense to you. And some of the Buddhist interpretations were beautiful and were eerily relevant to the text. And at the end, people were calling me rabbi again. And when I decided to actually go to rabbinical school, the head of Students for Free Tibet at the time, I had visited him, looked at me and said, about time. Because apparently, while I was studying Buddhism and practicing Buddhism, I could not stop talking about Judaism. And the same thing happened at Chovevei Torah. While I was studying to be a rabbi, I couldn't stop comparing, contrasting it to my Buddhist practice. There was a lot of tension there, but there was also a lot of potential for an enriching and enlivening conversation. So that's my history with it. First, let me just give on one leg. This would be Hillel's version of Buddhism. Just so for those of you who don't know what it's about, I can give you a one-leg version, only to say at the very end of this talk that there's absolutely no way you can give a one-leg version of anything that we call religion, that that's simply impossible, but at least to give a sense of some of the ideas that are, I'll call them universal, even though we can interpret them in different ways. Buddhism believes in what they call four noble truths. The first is that sentient beings, human beings, animals, everybody suffers, and that that's a problem. We want to resolve that. The second thing is that there are causes, there are reasons for the suffering. The third is that there are ways to alleviate and to liberate oneself from suffering. And the fourth is that the Buddha figured out how to do that, that there is a path, there's a way out. What does suffering mean? That might differ if you ask somebody in Tibet, if you ask somebody in Japan, if you ask somebody in Korea, if you ask somebody in Sri Lanka, if you ask somebody in India, if you ask somebody, you get the picture. What, the, what is the path? That will also differ just as much as a Reformed Jew's idea of what it means to be a good Jew differs from a conservative Jew, differs from an Orthodox Jew. Only we're talking about hundreds of millions of people. So all those things have different interpretations, but in this case, everybody will at least say, yes, we believe there are these four noble truths. They also believe that there is some form of ignorance that the average person experiences. When we perceive the world, when we look at things in the world, we aren't seeing things with an enlightened point of view. There's some way in which we are perceiving the world that is ignorant. We're missing out on something. And that has to do with 
the existence of a self. What does self mean? What does existence mean? Again, all those different places will give different interpretations. But certainly the common thing is what they'll call an Atman in Sanskrit. They don't believe that I exist, whether it means I have a soul or my, my sense of who I am is somewhat askew. In Tibetan Buddhism, it means that everything exists based off of, exists based off of how we perceive it. I perceive this as a chair. It's a chair. But if I had a more enlightened mind, I might perceive it as something else. I might see a greater potential, greater possibility in it. There are all types of ways of understanding this. And these are very common within Buddhism. And it depends on your tradition, as I said. So that's Buddhism in a, in, on one foot. They also have karma, belief that our past actions come back to us. They believe in reincarnation, mostly, many, many do. That's why you can't just get out of suffering by doing something as, tr as drastic as taking your own life, which is considered, uh, just, it's just not considered an effective way to, to go about it. There's reincarnation. You'll just be reincarnated. You'll have to face the same issues again. That's Buddhism in a nutshell. There is much more to it than that. It would be like saying, Judaism on one leg, don't do unto others what is hateful unto you. It's a wonderful idea. It is an educational agenda that Hillel had, one I agree with. Don't do unto others. I think it's wonderful. But you certainly aren't going to know what Judaism is just from that one line. Just as now, you won't know what Buddhism is just from this one brief explanation. But just to give a sense, that's, those are the ideas that we're dealing with. So with that, I want to turn to our texts. Because what I want to do is look at this tradition and say, are we talking about, can, can I look at Buddhism and say, this is what Buddhism is. It's idolatrous. It's enlightening. It's exactly what I envision it to be. Can I give an essentialized answer? In fact, you'll see there's a Buddhist underlying philosophy in how I want to approach this, which is that the answer is no. That I cannot look at a label of Judaism or a label of Buddhism or frankly any tradition and say, that's what it is. It exists in Plato, you know, outside of Plato's cave, so to speak. There's this form, ideal, perfect, platonic form of what Buddhism is. And that's what these people must believe. And that's what these people must be. And the same thing with Judaism. I cannot say that with one caveat. We are in a group of people where people have very different beliefs, very different approaches. If you believe God gave us the Torah, and I, I come from an Orthodox background, it's something that, I, you know, I, it's an idea that I think about often, then perhaps God has an ideal image of what Judaism is. If you believe in the Buddha, and you believe the Buddha attained enlightenment, then you might believe that there is an ideal image of what Buddhism should be. That being said, the paradox is, as soon as I believe that the Torah is given from God, then Buddhism is not from God, Buddhism does not have an ideal form, then I cannot create a label of Buddhism anymore. The very paradox of my own belief that my religion is correct and God is the one who gave it means these other ones came from people and their constructs. So am I going to say, and this is very relevant for today, I don't want to get political, but it is very relevant for today. If somebody says those people, they believe in this book that says to kill the following infidels. Maybe some of them do believe that, certainly. But I cannot, if, unless I believe that that religion exists out in the stratosphere and is an ideal form that is going to come down and tell people how to live, religions only 
Those types of religions, they only exist in the way people act and the way people behave. Certain communities may reflect a certain idea, other communities may not. So as soon as I believe in Torah coming from God, then I don't believe these other religions come from God. They come from people, and therefore they're subject to dynamic change and movement. Do you have a... Please, I love philosophy. Oh, yes. Yes. I, I agree with you 100%. And, and thank you for bringing that up. It's a point that I wanted to make as well. Even, and that's one of the things I want to draw out from these texts, even if we accept, for those, for those of us who accept a divine Torah or a divine tradition, it still has, it's not in the heavens. It still has to be interpreted through our own human minds and our own lens. And it's still going to have dynamic ideals and it's still going to have dynamic practices. That's the way in which human beings function. I will give the, the counter argument, which is there are people who believe that everything is a reflection of something from God and that perhaps other traditions are reflections of the devil's influence, demonic influence, that there is an ideal form of the other tradition and that Yes, it is also exists in the stratosphere, so to speak. There is a platonic ideal of idolatrous religions or of bad traditions that the, that the devil is constantly putting out there. So that would be the argument for how, how another religion can exist in a totally different form, in, in, a, total, in a formalized sense, even if, it, even if, it is, if we think of it as human-made. They're saying, no, it isn't human-made. It's, it's, uh, it's made by the devil. I don't, that's not my approach to life. Um, but that would be the way in which that would work. All right, with that, I want to turn to our texts. Um, the reason I picked the discussion of idolatry is because there is that, this is the most common conversation that I've had, and if you read books about the Jewish, the Jewish Buddhist encounter, what do you do with these idols? Okay, I want to meditate, I want to do all these things that are lovely that Buddhists do, but you have a statue of the Buddha or in, in the case of Tibetan Buddhism, you'll have statues of, of protector deities, Japanese Buddhism, of all types of beings with, with the, uh, several arms, and they might look, have different colors in which they look. And how do you do that? It, doesn't that seem like it's some form of idol worship? And it seems that for many people, it's ingrained. Like, how can, like, I, I don't practice Judaism, but I can't be in this room full of idols. So I wanted to look at some, some texts. The first one is from, uh, from Tehillim, it's from Psalms. Uh, it's one that is uh, commonly said in prayer services. Why do the nations say, where is their God? An intangible God. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Our God is all-powerful, right? Our God can do what God wants. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. 
and so will all who trust in them. Essentially, those who make them and those who put their trust in idols will die. What does it mean to look like a human being, to not be able to see, hear, speak, move around? They will have no more life. All you Israelites trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. God, that's an effective place to put your trust. I'm going to be very literal in my reading of this as best as I can. I'm not going to translate these uh, concepts philosophically for how we think of God today or how a medieval Jew might have thought of God or even how a rabbinic Jew, somebody, one of the rabbis of the Talmud might have thought about God. I just want to see to the best of my ability how I interpret the text based off of pshat, based off of a simple reading. You obviously are free to disagree with my simple reading. That's one text. There's a similar text in Jeremiah. I did not include because I didn't want to put the whole chapter in. The second verse is very important. The second verse is not listed here, but it says, do not learn from the ways of the nations and do not fear the portents and the signs of the heavens. And the ways of the nations includes idolatry, making idols, which we're going to get to, and looking at the heavens, looking at whether it's astrology, looking at stars, looking at meteors or, or comets, and being fearful in the face of that. So here in, in Jeremiah 10, Yermiahu Perak Yud, uh, in verse 8, but they are altogether brutish and foolish. The vanities by which they are instructed are but a stock. That what they're following, these portents, these idols, that's foolish. Silver beaten into plates, which is brought from Tarshish, and gold from Ufaz. The work of the craftsmen into the hands of the goldsmith, blue and purple as their clothing. They are all the work of skillful men. I translated it as skillful here. The word in Hebrew is chacham, wise. Um, it means talented. In this case, uh, the B'tzalel who made the tabernacle, the Mishkan, is called a chacham. He is talented. But it also is the wisdom of those who are looking at the stars, who are getting portents from the heavens. So it's this general sense of how to both craft and how to learn and gain wisdom. And Jeremiah is saying, the wisdom of idolaters, that's, that's a problem. Compares it, compares it to God in the next pasuk, who, the next verse, who creates the earth. And just looking at, at uh, verse 11, the gods that have not made the heavens and earth, these shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. And skip to 13 particularly, and the sound of his giving a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, he make lightning and rain. He brings forth the wind out of his treasuries, as opposed to the gold and silver brought out of treasuries. Every man is proved to be brutish without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by the graven image. His molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are vanity, a work of delusion. In the time of their visitation, they shall perish. Bringing these two together, the way I read it, is that the criticism is not just worshiping idols that, that don't move. It's that idol makers make something and they cannot make life. They cannot give vitality to this. God made an image of God. Human beings that moves, that can move around. It's, it proves the effectiveness of what the idols represent versus what human beings represent as images of God. God is somebody who can create life. God is somebody who can control the world. So in this biblical account... The problem with idolatry, in my opinion, is 
we live in a world that we're afraid of what's happening. We're afraid of what the portents of the heavens may bring. We're afraid of what nature may bring. And we want to control it. And the problem with idolatry is we personify forces of nature, and then we make an image of it, and then we try and control it by appeasing this force of nature, by serving it, by worshiping it. And what the Tanakh is saying, what the Bible is saying, is that that's not, it's not effective. You will be like them. It's not gonna, you'll, you will die, in a sense. It will not preserve you. It will not help you. It, there is no power in these idols to do anything. God, on the other hand, created the world. God is the one who actually makes it rain. So trusting in God, is that's the right way to go about it. Now, you can ask further problems. Is the concept we have of God also not... I mean, that's also an artifice of a type. What if, you know, those are, I think, very good questions. I think the Bible has its answers. One of them is a historical answer. The Bible is clearly very convinced that there were miracles that happened, that, that the Jewish people saw, the people of Israel saw. That's not an answer that works for everybody. But that is coherent within the Bible itself. The other thing is, is that God gives laws and that the way to appease God is through living in a just society, is through treating each other fairly, through, and through avoiding this sort of call it irrational sense of, I'm going to now control the world around me. I'm going to put control in somebody else's hands. And I'm going to live through a wise and just set of rules. One of the cute things about this, though, is if you take the metaphor really strongly, um, if people, if the way you deal with an idol as, an, as a personification of, of a god is through revering it, but idols aren't good personifications, they don't move, but people are good personifications of God because we move, we're vital, then that means the way to revere and venerate God is by treating other human beings very, very well. It's just the natural equation of the two. If I'm not going to revere a statue that doesn't move of, of a force that doesn't really help, but I will revere an image of the force that really does help. So it is, a, it is, a, uh, it is one, of the, I think one of the nicer, one of the nicer outcomes of this idea. So that's I think one biblical view of idolatry. There are two other things. I'm not going to bring in the texts, but there's a case of loyalty. Tanakh doesn't like the idea that people will worship foreign gods. Even the even other nations, they don't give up their god. There's some national connection. Um, and then finally, there's an ethical question. What if there's human sacrifice or something that is considered to be immoral connected with the idolatrous religion? then that's a problem as well. But I think those two really do go back to the same basic issue. That's, I think, the, the Bible's view of idolatry. And then you have a very famous story from a rabbinic point of view. Many of you may have heard this. Um, at the bottom of that page, Rabbi Hia said, Terach was an idol manufacturer. He once went away and left Abraham to sell them. A man came and wished to buy an idol. Abraham asked him, how old are you? The man responded, 50. Abraham said, woe to this man. You are 50 years old and would worship something a day old. The man left ashamed. One time a woman came carrying a plate of flour. She said to him, go make an offering to them. Abraham took a stick, smashed them, and placed the stick in the hand of the largest idol. When his father came, he asked him, why did you do this to them? I cannot conceal it from you. You know, you get George Washington. I cannot tell a lie. 
a woman came in with a plate of flour and told me to offer it to them. This one said, I shall eat first. And that one said, I shall eat first. Then the largest idol took the stick and broke them. This next line, I, I translated it loosely because it didn't translate into English well. So I came up with, with a, my own vernacular. Terach said, are you messing with me? Do these idols have awareness? Which Abraham responds, do your ears hear what your own mouth is saying? Like you're worshiping these things, they have no power. And I think it very much captures some of the biblical uh, view of idolatry. I always wondered about this story. Once I, once, once I got to junior high and I came across this again, I said, I mean, you're right, but were they idiots? They're obviously like, like we can be at least a bit generous. Like you'd think of the millions of people who use idols in their religious life, you'd think that one of them would have asked the same question and that maybe they would have come up with a good answer. And in truth, if you look at traditions that use idols, they do have answers to these questions. They may not be the answers that work for us, but they do have answers to them. So now, the first, there's a story of uh, uh, Rabbi David Wolf Blank. This is from The Jew and the Lotus. I remember reading this, and, and it was the first time I saw somebody sort of address, like, wait a minute, you know, maybe there's another, another way to look at this. So Rabbi David Wolf Blank was a, was a Lubavitch chassid. Um, very, he became very involved in the Jewish renewal movement, but he practiced Zen Buddhism for some time. And this story recounts his encounters with it. He said, I didn't want to sit in the temple because they have a Buddha they all bow to, and I thought it was pretty primitive. I told the Roshi that, and he said, come with me, and he went into the Zendo. He said, do you think we really bow to this thing? Well, I told him, it looks bad. How do I know you don't? He took it by the head, turned it upside down, and opened the storage room and flung it very disrespectfully, bounced it into, a wooden, uh, into the wood storage room and slammed the door. He said, if we were going to bow to it, do you think I would do that? People came in and saw there was no Buddha, and they bowed to the emptiness. So I had no trouble after that sitting in the Zendo where the Zen teacher could do that. Just as an example. And within Zen particularly, there is a tradition of iconoclasm. Um, there's a, a, another story. This is, uh, this is from a, um, a set of koans. It's, a, it's basically a, a story meant to get people to think or, or to stop thinking, depending on how you want to interpret it. Um, Tenen Zenji of Tasia went to Loyang when he visited Eren Temple, the weather was extremely cold. He took the wooden Buddha, which was in the temple, and made a fire to warm himself. The abbot saw this and upbraided him. How dare you burn up my wooden Buddha? Tenen poked the ashes with his staff, saying, I burned it in order to make some relics. So already we see a little bit of a practice that we're not used to in Judaism, although in certain Hasidic groups there is something similar. They do believe that the um, ashes from... A from a deceased enlightened from the Buddha. Um, and sometimes there are little, I've seen them there, these, they look like little pellets that uh, come out of the uh, burning of the Buddha or whatever Buddhist saint that they're talking about, that they, ha that they are worthy of veneration. Here there are no relics. He said, I burned it in order to make relics out of wood. Uh, the abbot said, a wooden Buddha has no relics because it was never a living being. Kenan said, if it has none, I shall beg you for a few more images. And he took them and burned them. See, it was cold. Whereupon the abbot fell into hell, which, which means that the abbot became incredibly incensed and anger, angry and lost his sense of repose and gave into his, his hatred.
Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. I'm not going to read the next text, but it's by Suzuki Roshi, who's a very famous teacher of Zen Buddhism in America. Um, although it is a good opportunity to, to say that this is a perfect example of the difference between American views of Buddhism and Buddhism as it happens all over the world, is that we have specific teachers, so our understanding of Zen Buddhism is going to follow Suzuki Roshi's and some of the other teachers that have, that have been influential here. But that doesn't mean that that's the only school of Buddhism that was in Japan. And it doesn't mean that he was, you know, that his teachings were even representative or reflective of what Japanese Buddhists accepted. So with that, we're going to compare, we say, wait a minute, maybe Buddhism isn't idolatrous. And in fact, would we do what this Zen Roshi did with his idol to say, say for Torah, it's behind me? Would we ever do that? In fact, we might walk around the room holding it, dressed in crowns, in wonderful garments. We might treat it with all types of respect. And I, I quote from the Shulchan Aruch, one is obligated to act with great honor towards a Torah scroll, um, to set aside a special place for it. One should not spit in front of a Torah scroll. One should not get undressed before it. I, I underline one should not extend his foot facing it because you'll see that that exact line is in a Buddhist text about, uh, about how to act within a temple. One should not carry it on his head like a bundle. One should not throw sacred writings. Uh, on the next page, a house that has a Torah scroll in it, one may not engage in sexual intercourse. One has to take it outside, or if that's the only place that you're living, you have to set up some type of barrier, a machita, between yourself and the Torah scroll. Not only that, we often identify the scroll with God. Now, you can interpret what this means. I re- I'm going to respect that people will say, you know, it doesn't mean that literally. But the language is there. And if we can interpret it metaphorically, so, th- so can they. The Panim Yafot is quoting the Zohar. And the Lord will be to me God. And this is the Torah. As it says in the Zohar, the Holy Blessed Be and the Torah are one. This idea of identifying just as one of the problems we might say with idols. Why are you bowing to this idol? Well, that idol isn't, is that idol God? Well, we're parading around a room with a Torah and treating it like it's God. I'm not saying all this to get you to, to, to say, okay, I'm going to give up on Judaism. It's all idolatry. I have a point. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm a rabbi. I get my living off of, you know, teaching Torah. So I'm hoping that you still, that you leave here with a, you know, wanting to uh, believe in Torah. Um, at least, you know, however you do believe in it. I'm not, uh, you know. I am very pluralistic. So right now the image is, oh, we might have this label. It's a very American label. Buddhism is iconoclastic because Suzuki Roshi said so, because I have these stories that say so, because there was this Zen, there was this, uh, Zen center in Denver where, they threw the, uh, where the Roshi threw the statue. And then I think about my experiences in Tibetan Buddhism and reading that and saying, no way. My teacher of Tibetan Buddhism would never, ever let me do something like that. He would get so, they, he would say it's terrible karma. He would never th- treat an image of the Buddha in this way. 
Uh, so this next text is taken from a Tibetan Buddhist, the Lamrim tradition. That's, think of it as a, uh, if you're familiar with the Kitsur Shulchan Aruch, sort of a short uh, view of Jewish law, sort of very sort of bullet-pointed Jewish law, the Lamrim is, is equivalent to the Shulchan Aruch, and this text is the Kitsur Shulchan Aruch. It is a bullet-pointed uh, view of obligations and practices and beliefs that a Tibetan Buddhist would have within this particular tradition. The very first one of these three specific commitments is generate respect for all images of the Buddha, even if the quality of the artwork is poor, and regard them as an actual Buddha. Right? The Torah and God are one. Here, the image and the Buddha are one. The next thing is taken from a very well-known teacher of, uh, of Southern Buddhism, of, um, of what they call Theravadan Buddhism. Uh, and... I'll just read the underlined section. This is describing how you would build your shrine room. He says, Nowhere in the Buddhist world are Buddha images treated as ornaments for a living room. And a Buddha image is always given the highest seat in the room. Remember, the Torah is given a special place in the room as well. The Buddha image is displayed in the place of honor. In the shrine room, this will be on the highest part of a shrine. If on a special shelf, then that shelf is usually high in the wall. Also, if the shrine room occupies part of the room used for sleeping that this would be contrary to some Buddhist traditions. And if you look in the Shulchan Aruch, you don't put the Torah on the room you sleep in. You don't put the Torah on the bed. A Buddha image should be treated respectfully, the underlined section. And it is a good way of training oneself to treat the Buddha image as one would Gautama, the Buddha himself. Reverence is part of the Dhamma. It's a Dharma, in, in it depends on Sanskrit or Pali. Those are different pronunciations. It basically would translate to Torah if one were to use if one were to make an, equ an equation there. Buddhists of all traditions have shrines with images, paintings, stupas, and so on, just because reverence is an essential part of Buddhist training. And then finally, just to show that this, within the Tibetan tradition, in speaking about intercourse, like we saw in the Shulchan Aruch, there are inappropriate places that are, that are for, for being intimate. And that includes locations of the sublime teaching, stupas, which are, um, monuments for uh, usually have um, they usually have relics in them, images and the like. So now we've come full circle. Well, maybe it is idolatrous. In fact, and its idolatry, its idolatry seems very similar in practice to what we do with the Torah. And finally, uh, this is pulled from a tourism re website about paying visit. About if you're in Tibet and you want to visit a monastery, it's just all the ways you you uh, respect monastery. And one of them is. Do not sit with the soles of your feet facing the altar, just like the Shulchan Aruch. You don't sit with the soles of your feet. I remember being told this. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, he's you know, a New Yorker. Um, he used to call himself an honorary Jew because he grew up in New York, and it was true. He knew as, as much about, uh, about Jewish traditions as, as many Jewish people I knew. Um, and I sat down, and I stretched my feet out, and he went, whap, <laughs> pull it back. He's like, that's really disrespectful here. I was like, okay. Then let's add on another element. Are are we saying that in Buddhism, again, a, a large label, a very large label, do we also have the, are, do they treat idols as being special even beyond just respect? Let me tell you what I was told, and I've read this in several places. Imagery is like a picture of your children or of your boyfriend or of somebody you care about. Of course, we have a picture of the Buddha. We have an image of the Buddha or 
or an idol of the Buddha. And just like you can imagine the, the lovelorn college student whose you know, high school sweetheart is, in, is you know, halfway across the country taking out you know, the photo and, and saying, wow, like, and treating it with reverence and respect in, re in place of the person who isn't there, that that's how it was first explained to me. But not that the image is the same. It's not the same person at all. It's just, just like you would, it's a way of showing respect. Let's go with a, uh, a couple stories. I couldn't find the Tibetan of this. I only found it in, uh, in English, so I have absolutely no idea how to properly pronounce this person's name. Um, but in the year Iron Male Mouse, that's, uh, that's a year in the Tibetan calendar, he took the vow in front of the Mahabodhi at Vajrasana not to partake of more than a single grain of rice. A Mahabodhi is an image in this case, an image of the Buddha, and a drop of water per day while expecting a prophecy by the Mahabodhi image. On the twelfth day, the host poured some water over his head, but he scarcely felt it. So he's so deeply in meditation and fasting. On the eighteenth day, the Mahabodhi image spoke to him, saying, O son of noble family, proceed to Mount Patala and practice the virtuous conduct in the matter of the bodhisattvas in the presence of the bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, the, the Buddha of compassion. The Dalai Lama is considered an incarnation of the Buddha of compassion of this person. So here we have a statue speaking. Then there's this really great story. This is an old, an ancient story. This is from, I believe, the 6th century from a, a Chinese uh, a traveling monk. To the southwest of the great stupa, there's a figure of a Buddha in white stone about 18 feet high. It is, standing, it is a standing figure and looks to the north. It has many spiritual powers and diffuses a brilliant light. If you just skip one line, it says, Lately a band of robbers wished to go in and steal. The image immediately came forth and went before the robbers. Affrighted, they ran away. The image then returned to its own place and remained fixed as before. The robbers, affected by what they had seen, began a new life and went about through towns and villages telling what had happened. We have stories of Buddhists, and not just Zen Buddhists, there are other traditions being iconoclastic. And here we have stories of Buddhists who talk about idols walking around, which is... We have stories of staffs turning into snakes. We also, as, we'll end, as I'll look at the end, have stories of great prophets breaking um, you know, the word of God. You know, there's, there's a pretty famous story of that one. Um, so, which is real? And I'm going to borrow a Buddhist approach and saying, in truth, these labels are ones that we place on everything. Even simple ideas, like the chair in front of me, is, I, I, come, I come at it with baggage. I come at it with associations. Complex ideas, like what is Judaism? What is Torah? What is Buddhism? What is Christianity? What is idolatry? That's much more difficult to say, wow, this is, this is what Buddhism is. Now, of course, I've cherry-picked these texts, and you have to take what I say with a grain of salt. I'm, I'm also not a practicing Buddhist now, nor am I a, you know, I, I'm not working, my PhD is not in Buddhism, but I think that these are at least somewhat reflective and representative of various traditions that are real in terms of real people practicing them, and they'll have very different outcomes. The next source, I don't want to read it, but it's, I think, a good source in terms of the basic point being you'll have within the same country in Sri Lanka a video saying how, yes, for 
for like the regular people, they believe the statues have power. But once you get a little bit, you know, once you're a little more enlightened, you know, the crazy Hasidim, they do this, but you know, the more rational Western, uh, you know, uh, Lithuanian or German or, they, they don't have this stuff. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the crazy superstitious people. We don't do that. And then what the author of this text did an ethnography of people who made Buddhist images and found that there are all these rituals where there's a fear of the power. You're not even, the idol maker is not allowed to look at, has to cover their eyes because the, the vision that they got from making the Buddha can cause harm to people. We can say, well, the elites, that's what's real. You know, Maimonides, that's the real Judaism. And of course, every, every denomination of Judaism claims that if Maimonides were alive today, he would be a reconstructionist, or he would be orthodox, or he would be conservative. It's, we can say it's the elite, or we can look at, uh, if you know the, the no true Scotsman uh, logical fallacy, you know, no true Scotsman does this, but then you find, you know, then you find all, all these men from Scotland who do X. Well, no true Scotsman does Y, and then you find all these men from Scotland who do Y. At some point, you say, well, no, maybe your idea of what a, of what a Scotsman is is wrong um, or needs to be adjusted. It's the same thing. Even within Zen, you have, even within more iconoclastic versions of Zen, you still have tremendous reverence, examples of tremendous reverence. Even in the story of the guy burning the wood, the other abbot, the other Zen abbot was, you know, was clearly not expecting it. The expectation was that we would treat the image with respect. Then you have, in the next source, I wanted to bring just the middle ground. And that's reincorporating it. So what do we do? If you're a Buddhist and you say, huh, you have all these stories of people who are breaking idols and treating idols disrespectfully, and I want to show that that's not how you should behave, then I need to justify it. So this is from the same text I read earlier about the shrine room. Say, some who have read about the iconoclastic attitude of some Zen masters or of the siddhas who are last partly Buddhist, last, the last partly Buddhist teachers in India, and it's, it's uh, before the extinction of Buddhism there. It's a whole interesting historical topic. There are remarks and actions recorded of some of the former teachers which might lead one to expect that whatever else Zen is, surely reverence plays no part in it. Such people are bound to be a little startled by the emphasis on reverence and the large devotional element present in the daily training of anyone, monastic or lay, who stays in the Zen temple long enough. So he's dealing with this complication. How do we understand it? So he has his answer. You know, I could see, I imagine one of my rabbis from the yeshiva, you know, with his thumb in the air going, if, you know. So the siddhas too spoke against rituals but that was because they were faced with a great overgrowth of Buddhist ritualistic devotion, gradually accumulated through centuries of Mahayana and Vajrayana. Those are types of, uh, uh, those are general trends within Buddhist practice, uh, mostly Northern Buddhist practice. In matters of devotion, as in other things, one should remember that the Buddha himself taught Dhamma in the middle with the rejection of extremes. Confidence should be balanced with wisdom, but one-sided practice will not lead to great fruits, will not be productive in attaining enlightenment. So he gives an, a contextual answer. Those teachers had to do it in that time, but of course, that doesn't mean that, that's, that we don't revere idols, we don't revere statues. It's just that in that particular historical circumstance, it was necessary. And in truth, 
we'll find the same answers if we look at, well, why do we, Maimonides is a great example. Animal sacrifice. For Maimonides, animals, and for many people, and it's certainly today as well, animal sacrifice seems very odd. I think today we're at a point where the idea of calling anything primitive is we, we, we step back from because we want to be at least a little more respectful. Um, but the idea that this is a practice that one should never do, Maimonides said, you know what? God couldn't just say, hey, you should just sit and meditate on the oneness of God. He couldn't get away with saying that today. No prayer, no, no festive meals, no mitzvot. God realized that in that day and age, everyone sacrificed animals. And personally, I, I, just as a side, I would prefer that people sacrifice animals and be involved in it in a spiritual and, and in a spiritual way than the way we do it today where we hunt in supermarkets and you know, slaughter animals with credit cards and skin them from the plastic wrap. Um, I, at least with the sac whether or not we relate to it, at least there's a, there's a knowledge of what's going on. Um, we're not as distanced from it. So um, that's a, as an aside. But for Maimonides, he contextualized it. Uh, we're, not, we're not primitives who, who need this very visceral uh, uh, ritual. We're, we, we're an enlightened tradition from God. But God knows that in the time that that was what was necessary. So he contextualizes it. So you see these answers, these, this type of way of answering um, contradictions and conflicts. Are, Jews do it too. Buddhists do it. It's all over the place. Then finally, in terms of the texts, there are basically two texts I want to look at. One is one more source from, uh, from the Jew and the Lotus. Um, it was a few pages long. I didn't want to give three pages here. But uh, Reb Zalman, Shachter Shalomi, and the Dalai Lama are engrossed in conversation. Reb Zalman has charts and charts of Jewish angelologies. Just uh, if you look at uh, their texts uh, called the Hechalot literature, which describe um, uh, Rabbi Ishmael uh, going into the heavens and describes the dimensions of angels, describes the dimension uh, and just the myriad of angels all over the place. There are all these traditions, many of whom were lost, uh, certainly in Western Jewish traditions. Um, many of them were, were lost in the Holocaust as well. People who practiced believing this were, were killed. Um, and many of them just aren't taught. They're just not part of how we live as Jews in America. Um, but Reb Zalman had lists and lists. This is this angel. This is the color of this angel. Dalai Lama was very, very impressed with the idea that, I mean, you have colors for the angels as well. Like, this angel's blue, this angel's blue. It's like, yeah. Because in, in Tibetan Buddhism, you have similar ideas, especially within the tantric tradition, of visualizing different deities. And they are symbolic, and they represent different things. But as I said, some might have, have more than two arms, and they might be in different colors. He was great. I mean, you have a Western tradition that has the same type of, same type of stuff. So after that... Roger Kamenitz writes, I could see that the other Jewish delegates were getting a bit uncomfortable with that energy of Rabzalmand. Rabbis have egos too, it's true. Um, and perhaps some were simply concerned that Zalman would use most of the time that day, as indeed he did. But there was something else too. 
Although the group had already assumed Rabbi Schachter's material would be of interest, they could not have anticipated this absolute explosion of curiosity from the Dalai Lama. It hit with enormous force. Suddenly they confronted their own embarrassment about the subject, which was not just theirs personally, but endemic to contemporary Judaism itself. Rabbi Greenberg, for instance, felt the need to add some spin control. This is Yitz Greenberg, one of, one of my teachers. What you're hearing is the mystical tradition. Actually, there are two or three you know, mystical traditions. Many in the more rational or more legal systems would not affirm all these beliefs. Then Rabbi Joy Levitt piped into general amusement, and some of us are hearing them for the first time as well. Even though her comic timing was impeccable, her remark defined in brief the whole mainstream Jewish attitude toward mysticism. Repression of angels has been going on for centuries, but somehow the Dalai Lama had cracked it open and released them. Uh, the next is one is just a description of a protector deity from the Tibetan tradition. And then the next one is taken from a, the Jewish encyclopedia, which was edited over a century ago. And you could see just the, the agenda of removing angelology in there, you know, after the victorious advance of the Kabbalah, and that these, these what he refers to as occidental, uh, of, as oriental and occidental trends, um, and how these were trends that didn't win out. The occidental trend, the oriental trends weren't totally eliminated yet, but the view is that he wants it to be eliminated. So then the final source, and then we'll, we'll draw, draw it all together, and I want to open up for questions, is now we've seen that we treat Torah with great respect. There are traditions, and they're more than what I've mentioned here. These are just certain sources that I put together, where we may even see the Torah and God as one. Um, there are traditions of angels, and there are all things that we might call superstitious in, from certain points of view within Judaism. And that within Buddhism, we have both the iconoclasm and the breaking of the statues. And we also have great reverence and belief that uh, images of the Buddha walk around. Finally, I, I think most of us are familiar with the story of Moses coming down with the Ten Commandments, seeing Israel worshiping a golden calf and breaking the commandments. So this is our iconoclastic story. So um, in this sefer, the Meshech Chachma, Mayor Simcha of Devinsk, and please let me know how much. Good. Oh, great. I have no idea what time it is. So. Perfect. Perfect. So, and Moses became angry and he cast the tablets from his hands. It seeks to say that there is no sanctity or divinity at all without the existence of the creator. Name, may his name be blessed. Some of the words got erased here. Weird. Okay. And if he brought the tablets, it would be as if they were exchanging the calf for the tablets. So what Romer Simcha Dvinsk so far is saying that he would have brought the tablets or for, we might say the Torah if, one, if we could just exchange it. And they wouldn't have related to the Ten Commandments, any differently than the idol that they were worshiping before. And they would not deviate from their error. For the true form had not yet been inscribed within them. The true, yeah, this true image of what God is, I, this, my whole talk is about not being formalistic, but to believe in the necessary existence behind existence, this power behind everything. Beyond, it's obviously more, more, more to it than that, but, but that God is beyond comprehension and without form, Therefore, they erred with the calf. And the tablets taught them to uproot these false images from themselves. And Moses actually acted superbly in breaking the tablets in order to teach that nothing created has inherent sanctity apart from Israel's observance of the Torah from the will of the creator, the holy name 
be blessed who created all. So we have our own, this is our own iconoclastic story saying that, yeah, we can, in fact, treat the Torah like an idol. Within the people, yeah. Yeah, within the people. Yes. All right. So it seems some words that I put in, I, I, I must have skipped words when I was retyping it. Um, so I want to bring this together. On the one hand, when I talk about Judaism to people who are not practicing, who are not Jews, I may have, I may have the image I want to put out there. This is what Judaism teaches. Yeah, you know, Judaism believes in the following things. We, we believe in tikkun olam. And I, I, I do believe in tikkun olam. And I could tell you that I can be in Jewish communities where if you say the words tikkun olam, they'll think that you must be a heretic because only liberals say that. I might say Judaism is a very rational religion. We believe in doing things on the ground. In fact, one story, when I came to Israel after leaving India, I, I kind of solicited myself out. I sat in, you know, I was 23, you know, I, I sat in Jerusalem looking like a lost soul, waiting for Chabad or Eshet Torah to like come and, and, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and it happened. And I, they said, oh, come to classes on Judaism. I, I mean, I had studied Talmud as a kid. I, I went to, you know, but I didn't tell them that. I wanted, to, you know, I wanted to see what they had to teach, how they introduced themselves to people. And they had a class on other traditions. And you know, apart from getting my hackles up, uh, I sat there and watched as they completely dismissed Eastern traditions, our Pan-Asian cooking traditions, with one fell swoop that because they're focused on suffering, they believe this world has no meaning, and they believe they just need to transcend the world. And therefore, it's, the practice is always about avoiding this world. It's never about practical ways. And I remember the, the language um, you know, about how do you take care of your neighbor? How do you take care of your family? How do you, what do you do in this circumstance? What do you eat? What do you, how do you sleep in ways that you could bring godliness into this world? Judaism is focused on this world, Buddhism and Eastern religions want to transcend this world. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, that's really funny because I just a month ago was studying this Lojong text, which are telling me specifically, how do I treat my neighbor well? How do I treat my enemy well? Somebody who, who just disturbs me, somebody who like, you know, we all have people who we love, we'd love to be, you know, have no emotions. We'd love to have no feelings about, but there are people we don't like. How do I learn from that person? How do I learn patience from that person? And even down to like details, of my teacher was telling me, oh, these are practices you could do. Like, you know, minutia, Talmudic minutia. You know, I remember my, my Talmudic background, I would ask him, well, what if I'm in this circumstance? Should I do this or that? He would get very frustrated. Something like that, it just was very odd because the way they presented it in one, and dismissed it in one fell swoop. Plus I was familiar with Jewish traditions that are not very worldly, or communities where, and I'm going, I don't, want, I don't want to be hypocritical now. I don't want to brush aside communities with one fell swoop. So, but where you have this idea that, yes, you should be studying Torah all day, 
and the government perhaps should be paying for you to do so. Even though you could be working in the world and you could be involved in being a member of society, you should be sitting and learning Torah and have, very, and have a real separation from the world around you. Now, I, I'm not saying that to, I, I think those communities also deserve the same type of openness to understanding that I'm saying we, we need to for Buddhism or for Judaism. I think those communities do as well. Whether or not in the end we agree, at least to give them the benefit of the doubt. But if you're going to be writing off whole communities with broad brushstrokes, then I can just turn the tables. I kept my mouth shut because one other person in the room said, because we're sitting in Jerusalem, said, well, you know, if I go up on top of that hill, to, is the imam going to say the same thing that you just said? And if I go down to the, the church just down the street, the Church of Holy Sepulchre, are they going to say the same thing? And I said, there's like, okay, well, like, this guy and I see, seem to see eye to eye on this. Like, I'm, I'll come to you to learn about Judaism, but I'm, I'm not going to learn about what Buddhism is from you. I know that. Because I've learned what Buddhism is from other people, and it seems to be nothing like what you're saying. One of the things I wanted to bring these texts to say is that, like, we have so many different people, so many different ways of experiencing our traditions, and that if we limit ourselves to this is the label of Buddhism, this is what Judaism really is, then we miss out on the experience in the moment of who we're meeting and what they believe in, how they live their lives. How many people here have had this experience where you've met somebody who is Jewish and goes to the same synagogue as you do, has a very similar type of practice, but you have completely and radically different worldviews? And how many of you have met people who are Christian, who are Buddhist, who, are, who practice something completely differently, but you connect on totally, your, your spiritual worldview is so similar. I sat on a panel, uh, you know, I was the Jew on the panel. There was uh, an Episcopalian, there was a Catholic, there was, and we were all asked the question, uh, this is in 2006, New Jersey had just allowed, um, had just allowed same-sex unions. And I'm not, I'm not saying this to get political. People have, I know different points of view on this, but the question was asked, if you could legal, if you were on the New Jersey State Senate and you could legalize same-sex marriage today, what would, yes or no, and you can't say, just have to say yes or no. Every single person said yes. At which point I said, is this really an interfaith panel? Like you might actually have more interesting religious dialogue if let's just keep it all Christian. And you'll have somebody from the Catholic Workers Party and somebody from, you know, somebody from, a, 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 from an evangelical uh, you know, outreach organization and somebody, you, know, you could fill it and, and divide it based off of political affiliations or church affiliations. I bet you'd have more different spiritual worldviews than we had in that panel. So... That, I think we have, it's probably about 20 minutes to have questions. Um, have you seen anything rising in terms of um, contact or with, 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 I mean, Buddhism goes back to the Yeah. With, with the, um, um, I've seen, I mean, Buddhism uh, goes back to, if, if you were to take the most conventional histories, uh, the Buddha lived around the time of uh, the destruction of the first temple, maybe a little after. Um, where I've seen contact is 
you see reference to Buddhist ideas in the works of Sajagons. That's going ahead a decent amount. Um, there are Buddhist stories that have made it into rabbinic works. Um, the, uh, in Provence, you have the Meiri, who lived in the 14th century. Um, and he tells a story. He doesn't say it's a Buddhist story, but he tells a story that is clearly of Buddhist origin. So there is, there is some interchange. Um, you... There isn't, to my knowledge, a smoking gun of, like, there was... Sajagon lived in an environment where there was debate and dialogue in that part of the world between all types of different uh, religious communities was common. He was writing in a form of literature. The, uh, Sajagon lived in the ninth century. Um, and he, uh, of his various works, he wrote a book called uh, um, Emunot Videot, uh, the book of... Uh, beliefs and opinions, and it is written within a style of Arabic literature um, called Kalam, where it is, it is a polemical work. That is, it's meant to be a religious polemical work, and it's written within a very specific style. There are works of different religious traditions. There's a Zoroastrian work written in that same style. Um, a friend of mine uh, who I went to JTS with many years ago, uh, um, that, he did his dissertation on that, uh, you know, on that book. So you do find references to Buddhism within works like that. Um, and I think that there is, a, there is some, uh, there, there is within certain Kabbalistic works, you'll find not necessarily Buddhist ideas per se, but uh, Indian ideas um, that the notion of how, how the tree of life works how, uh, has its parallels to chakras and, and to other ideas. And chakras are also within Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, as well. So I don't know, but there isn't a smoking gun to say, yes, that was influenced one way or the other. The interesting thing is what people say today about interactions. So if you were to open up um, Arya Kaplan's works, uh, Meditation in the Kabbalah, he starts with something from Menashe ben Israel. He lived in the 17th century in Amsterdam, and he says uh, all these ideas within think 17th century Amsterdam, we're talking about uh, the height of colonial trade. There are ships going to India and Europe. And ideas are starting to be traded as well. And he says many of the ideas that are within Hinduism are originally from Judaism. And there's a midrash that Abraham sent Hagar east with gifts. And what were those gifts? those gifts wind up being the mystical traditions and wisdom traditions within India. So, in fact, the, the, the good stuff from them comes from us. Um, that, was, that story was repeated uh, in, that, in that class I took uh, about other religions. So, you know, there, it, there, Buddhism and Eastern religions have all these problems. And, yes, you'll find wisdom there, but that all comes from Judaism anyway. Um, so... I don't find much conflict, at least myself. This is my own anecdotal experience. I haven't done a survey of it. Um, I haven't found much conflict. I think that we don't have a lot of baggage with Buddhists. Uh, you know, there isn't the sense that, you know, that they've been trying to convert us or kill us for 2,000 years. Um, there, isn't any, uh, there isn't a current political conflict as well. Um, so I, I haven't found so much. I think there, is, there are families that are... My father, Allah Hashalom, may he rest in peace, I told him 
you know, what would you say? And I had already taken refuge vows. I had basically had become Buddhist. I said, what would you say if I told you that I converted to Buddhism? And he said in the most loving voice ever, I would never speak to you again. Um, <laughs> which was his, and the truth is I knew he was lying too. Like he, that, that, and a couple years later, I, I, you know, and I was already back, you know, I was in rabbinical school at this point. He was talking to me about it. He's like, well, maybe I should study Buddhism. It's like, okay, <laughs> I won't stop you. Um, so I haven't seen major conflict. Uh, I think that the, 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 the question about what is the purpose of life does come up a lot. The, this stereotype, well, Buddhism is about leaving this world and Judaism is focused on this world. I don't want to say it has no truth. It does have some, there is some um, ways in which that manifests. And I, th and I think they both have ways of balancing it and ways of, of dealing with it. Obviously, you can't have a community last for thousands of years if they don't believe that this world is valuable. It's just evolution-wise isn't going to work. Um, so there is discussion around that, but I haven't seen much conflict. What attracted you to a religion the most when you say you almost converted to it? Well, What's the one thing about it that really rang true for you? Um, you have to answer the question in two ways. One is personally, which is not ideological at all. Personally, you know, I, I grew up, uh, you know, my, my mom passed away when I was young. You know, my dad couldn't really take care of three boys. Um, and there was, and the idea of addressing suffering was very meaningful to me. The idea that, not necessarily even consciously, but unconsciously, the idea that there was an answer for me to deal with all the, you know, the baggage that I grew up with, was, was attractive. The other thing I liked about it was I, I've always had, uh, I'd always had some type of skepticism in, uh, I'd, especially once I left this yeshiva uh, that I'd gone to when I was younger, I had this sense of I need to be skeptical of when people tell me this is objective truth, I need to have to have source of doubt for it. And Buddhism is very good, even as it's trying to say that it is objectively true, it is very good at giving you the terminology for thinking through things as this doesn't have an essential existence. This is not, this isn't real. This is, this looks real, but it isn't. It's very good at giving so me that. There's a logic to it that really makes sense. Yeah, there's a logic to it that makes sense. And I still, to be honest, I still use, and I found in Jewish sources. And I found in Western philosophical sources, at least the stuff that I, that at least the way I perceived it and the way that I was attracted to it. Sorry. You know, talking about those were even to my question, actually. Um, so to, to, to go from your individual circumstances to the, uh, I guess, the larger question of how Jews are currently interacting with Judaism, um, can you maybe expand on that? And, right. and specifically, though, here's my question. Um, obviously, we're, uh, we're people that, you know, particularly in our, in our history, have endured a lot of suffering. Right. And so I would imagine another philosophy or another religion, um, both, I guess, that maybe addresses that issue and specifically deals with it might have appealed to you and, and perhaps is appealing right. to other Jews. Can you, can you talk sure. about how, for instance, with, you know, Jewish observance and multiple Jews and, uh, right. you know, interacting with Judaism in different ways, but maybe just cover some of that. Sure. So there's really sort of two questions there because I'll deal with the second one first. The very first person I spoke to about 
Jewish suffering within, from a Buddhist point of view, said something that was horribly offensive to me. I'm going to repeat it. It's not necessarily something that everybody who's Buddhist would believe. But, what, but he had said, well, it's karma. You see, the Nazis will be reincarnated as Jews and treated badly by anti-Semitism. Basically, anti-Semites will be, you know, will be reincarnated as Jews. And, you know, and if, and if Jews um, don't, don't overcome their own karmic baggage or continue to hate, then they'll be reincarnated you know, as anti-Semites and then be reincarnated as Jews, and the cycle will continue. Um, I, I, was har- I was not happy with that uh, as a response, but uh, um, you know, so be it. Uh, uh, I, said, I, I didn't think of it in that way, in terms of uh, it being the, a Jewish history of suffering leading to people wanting to explore Judaism. What I have found, what many of the books talk about, is a sense of, a la- of something lacking within the Jewish community of a certain era. It might still be lacking today. Uh, we're working to, we rabbis are working very hard. There are at least three of us in the room to change that. Uh, but that there was something lacking in terms of spirituality within the communities and that there was this interaction with Eastern religions. There isn't the baggage. Becoming Christian is much harder um, there's much more of an identity issue there for most Jews. But exploring Buddhism, you don't have the same problems. So people were exploring it. Today, I found two things. You, have, you still have Jubus. You still have people who really do both. Um, you also have... Way, I saw a stat that I've heard... I think what it is is that one-third of American Buddhist teachers when that stat came out, when, when that stat, in the 90s. <laughs> One third of American Buddhist teachers were Jews. So the, the Jack Kornfelds and the, the, you know, the Sylvia Borsteins and you know, uh, even uh, uh, Pema Chodron is Jewish. And, and uh, um, uh, you have, uh, it, was Pema, it might be Tukton Chodron. I get them confused. Um, so I think that that's what the stat is. I don't know if that's the same anymore because of the second thing that I'm going to say, which is, like Sajagon and the Rambam and many others who adapted Greek philosophy into Jewish practice, meditation, um, yoga, other elements of, of Buddhist thought and of Eastern thought have become very common, even within mainstream organizations. You might have a meditative Kabbalah Shabbat. I don't know what, what, what's happened here, but you know, if you were to tell me, yeah, we, do, we have a meditation teacher who comes, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, it's, it's quite common. And I think that people have really adapted these practices and, and, and either secularized them or have used them to reawaken or interpret Jewish practices. There is a Jewish meditation tradition or many Jewish meditation traditions, but meditation is not a Jewish word or a Buddhist word. But there are traditions of similar types of cognitive disciplines within both Jewish tradition and Buddhist tradition. And if you look at teachers of Jewish meditation today, I've never experienced, this is anecdotal, I've never been to a Jewish meditation class where I have not seen somebody use elements of techniques that they learned in either Buddhist or yoga or yogic meditation techniques. That our meditation practices, when we say Jewish meditation, we're still going to borrow methods from teachers from the East. So it's influenced us in that, in that regard. Um, but other than that, I mean, I think it's, it's now we have families in their third generation. 
You know, so I don't know. It, there, you still people uh, exploring, but I, I don't think it's quite the same as it once was. So, I hope that answered your question. when you practice any kind of Eastern religion, the whole idea is to make yourself better, yes? And then, so in Judaism, that's something also. You're supposed to make mm -hmm. the world better and make yourself better as well. Right, so I, from the way I would frame it, at least from the conversation that we had, is that when you encounter somebody who is Hindu or Buddhist, you may find that you both share those traits in common, you may find you both share those goals in common. That doesn't necessarily extend to everybody else, even if they pay it lip service. It doesn't necessarily extend to everybody else. And that if, if there's a message to take from tonight, it's when you meet somebody, don't think you know them. You label them. Your label doesn't mean that's who they are. So that's, I, I think, the message to take away. If there's one final point, it doesn't mean ideas aren't powerful. It doesn't mean our image of what Torah is can't be meaningful or that we can't share it. And even that we can't speak in absolutes because we all have absolutes. But just remember that there is a line. And it will, as soon as you begin to, in my language, to um, undermine the dignity of somebody else who's made in the image of God by assuming that your labels are them, that your dead idol of what that religion is, is them, then you're not, then to me, I don't, it doesn't feel Jewish to me, even though I will, I might still label you as Jewish. So, thank you so much. It was wonderful. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.